Generative AI and large language model chatbots like ChatGPT are poised to change the world. Tools like these could raise global GDP by 7% or $7 trillion over the next decade. They'll save us time at work and speed up overstretched public services. But who will benefit and who will lose out in the AI race? And what impact will the identity of the people feeding these powerful pieces of software, and crucially with what data, have on underrepresented communities? This is exactly what our guests this episode, Alia Bhatia and Gabriel Nicholas of the Centre for Democracy and Technology, have been laser focused on as the AI phenomenon has unfolded. I'm Chris Stokel Walker, and for human rights organisation Article 19, this is Tectonic. Ali Abati and Gabriel Nicholas, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Brilliant. And I'm really glad to have you because I think that you are the perfect people to talk to about the AI revolution that we're currently undergoing. Uh, a lot of journalistic attention has been focused on, on what AI means for jobs, for society, about the spread of disinformation. Well, we had a good run. The Biden administration asking the public for help regulating artificial intelligence after a bot laid out plans to destroy humanity. AI is already driving that change in every part of American life, often in ways we don't notice. Almost one in every two jobs have a high risk of being automated by machines. It also comes a month after Elon Musk joined other tech leaders warning about the risk to society if AI is not reined in. You think... That's real. It is conceivable that AI could take control and reach a point where you couldn't turn it off and it would be making decisions for people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, that's, the, that's definitely the, where things are headed, uh, for sure. But we often seem to overlook the expression and the plight of people in other parts of the world where English isn't the dominant language. So I know you've both been looking at this and put out a paper in May on this subject. Alia, what are some of the ways that the rise of tools like ChatGPT will affect people in that part of the world? Yeah, thanks so much for having us, as I said. And we've been really excited to look at sort of the specific large language models that are powering many of these sort of chatbot applications like ChatGPT and the like. And as someone who's interested in technology, it's been super exciting to see people all over the world use these tools for like lots of different really fun applications from like writing emails that they don't want to write themselves to doing more research and using these language models to repurpose and do like think tasks like sentiment analysis. We've even seen artists use these tools to like fill gaps in literature and write in the vein of like Keats and Shakespeare and different applications. In Starbucks hallowed realm, I find my seat amidst the bustling crowd. I take retreat with phone in hand. I seek its digital embrace as coffee's warmth surrounds a moment's solace in pixels and tweets my world expands while sipping java held in gentle hands yet shakespeare's ghost may whisper in my ear unplug thyself for true connections near so you know there's a lot of like excitement there but the focus of our paper has been to understand whether the outputs and the performance of these language models is sort of equitable across languages. 
And when they aren't, why, why not? What are some of the challenges and opportunities there? And one of the biggest things we found was that even when these models are applied or used by non-English language speakers, they are still trained predominantly on English language text. And the impact of that is that they sort of encode English language values or assumptions even in the outputs when they aren't in English. And that can mean a lot of different things for users. Users can access information that is incorrect in languages other than English. Sometimes because of the dearth of training data in languages other than English, um, they might receive incomplete answers in different languages. And sometimes these models also see sort of translated text. So as a result, the outputs in these different languages are what we call translationese, awkward translations from English to a different language. So that all results in sort of muddying an information ecosystem for a non-English language speaker and accessing information that's incongruous to their local context or confusing or sort of encoding a worldview that's outside of what that language community is usually, um, outside of what their usual sort of information ecosystem and reality look like. Mm, and I guess it, you know, for listeners, a, a good analogy might be an English person speaking in a, in a French accent or trying to and, and failing or all kind of you know common things like what side of the road you drive on, those cultural mm-hmm. elements that are encoded in in society can be a challenge. And, and so, Gabriel, let me bring you in here. And apologies, because I'm going to throw you a, an impossible task. And I know it's difficult to do on a, on a podcast. I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit of the technology and the terminology that Alia mentioned there. We had large language models. We had the idea of encoding them. You know, how do large language models work and what are they? And how does this encoding matter to them? Uh, great. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for the question. I will do my very best. <laughs> so large language models are essentially an AI system that can read in lots and lots of text and learn patterns within that text. Um, And the sort of idea is the more text that you show it and the more diverse text that you show it, the more it is able to learn about different topics and get a better concept of how language works. With multilingual language models, which Ali and I have looked a lot at, we see these models getting trained in several different languages. For the most part, language models, most of their data ends up being English data, right? The majority of the internet is written in English. There is just a lot, a lot of English data out there for sort of long reasons of colonialism and neocolonialism. It's the legacy of that, but it ends up with the situation where there's a lot more data to train language models in English than there is in other languages. Language models can be used to generate text like they are in question and answer systems, but they can also be used to analyze text. Ollie and I in our paper talk a lot about how language models actually end up getting used for things like content moderation, and we raise concerns about how they could be getting used in uh, things like resume scanners, asylum applications. There's a lot of potential ways in which these models can be used not just to generate, but to analyze text. And with the multilingual aspect, you know, there are many languages for which a language model does not have as much text data to learn from. And so in order to make up for that dearth of text in some languages, what the model does is it infers connections between English 
and another language, right? So it can infer, you know, if a language model is trained on text from a bunch of different languages, but not very much text from Finnish, perhaps the way that the model understands Finnish is because of the connections it has from Finnish to English and back again. So guessing, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And it ends up being this funny thing, right, of maybe the word shoe and sock appear near each other in English, but the Finnish word for shoe and the Finnish word for sock don't appear near each other in any of the text that the model is trained on. And so instead, what the model has to do is it learns through the intermediary of English, right? It knows the Finnish word for shoe and the English word for shoe are related. It knows the Finnish word for sock and the English word for sock are related. And through English, it understands that the Finnish word for shoe and the Finnish word for sock are related. Now that makes sense in the example of shoe and sock, a lot of cultures, those are next to one another, but you can see how when this starts to become to more context and more culturally specific tasks, this can lead to importing an Anglo-centric lens into how the model generates texts or how the model analyzes texts in languages other than English. Alia, the problem here, I guess, is then not if we're talking about shoes or socks and coming up with shopping lists, but the way that AI is currently being heralded as kind of this ubiquitous technology that's going to be involved in all aspects of, I guess, particularly government we're worried about in this instance. Yeah, so we've already been seeing ahead of this rise of chatbots, governments all around the world increasingly wanting to use technology to facilitate service delivery or make information available. And in some cases, we are already seeing some chatbots sort of pop up on government websites, right? Like, are you looking for this information, right? And that was pretty simple sort of use of question answering tools. Um, but what we're concerned with is this application of this technology at scale and also a desire to sort of encode or establish national language policies through the use of this technology. You know, our paper, the scope of that was thinking about like the sort of hegemony of the English language in the use of these technologies. But at the more regional level, we can see governments and countries try to make these technologies better by choosing and by making a very active decision of like which language to advance versus the other. And as you said, that is history repeating itself, right? We've seen already around the world, official national language policy sort of advance linguistic access at the expense of other languages spoken by either minoritized communities and things like that. And so, you know, I think governments will have to make a similar decision when trying to advance performance of certain models in a language like Hindi at the expense of other regional languages. And, and what that means is that as sort of AI moves service delivery and other sectors onto, into this like digital revolution, it asks the question of like who is going to have access to benefits and who is going to have access to livelihood and how is that going to fall on these like fault lines of language and, and other socioeconomic proxies that language uh, represents. And you mentioned uh, the Hindi example. I mean, if we take India as a, a kind of example of this, is this all hypothetical at the minute? Or, or is this actually something that is either becoming reality or could become mm -hmm. reality? Many listeners might know of the Aadhaar system in India, the, the global 
ID system where essentially it gathers all of your data and uses that to control your access to public services, to banking. Is there a concern here that some of that kind of hegemony is going to be coded into an Indian large language model that is devoted solely to that country? Yeah, you know, I think those familiar with India know that language and the language you choose has had like a long politicized history in the country. And in the constitution of India, it's very clear that India is like a very pluralistic country, very, very multilingual. Most Indians speak multiple languages. And in recent times, starting in the 60s, but also again recently, there has been this push to make Hindi the sort of official language, which it is not currently. It is the official language in terms of parliamentary proceedings, but at the regional level, every state government puts out documents in their own language and only a sort of fraction of the country actually does speak and read Hindi as like a primary language. Um, so this desire to sort of create systems at the government level, at the federal government level, can very easily sort of coincide or advance this desire within the ruling party to prioritize Hindi as the national language, which will come at the exclusion of many seeking those public services, many seeking those benefits. And, and how it sort of coincides with existing systems of control, the Aadhaar system is a great example. It was a sort of digital ID that not only facilitated access to benefits, subsidies, things like that, but it also created lines of exclusion as well. And so if you were to automate the public service delivery, if you were to apply a language model on top of the existing Aadhaar system, it could be akin to sort of automating that sort of exclusion. Um, and then there's this like similar thread there of like what sort of Hindi and other language texts will actually train this model. And the truth that, you know, I think Gabe was also articulating here is that there isn't a lot of data in not only Hindi, which is a language spoken by hundreds of millions of people, but specifically those like regional languages, those dialects, those languages that the Indian government has also not digitized for so long and, and has not received that support. And so it's not only a matter of you know, the lack of the data, it's also the lack of the diversity of that data. And if we don't have a model that's equipped to understand the range of ways people sort of write and communicate and express need for these different types of benefits, this model will only encode that Hindi hegemony, will only continue to sort of reinforce the patterns of that sort of linguistic divide at scale. And that's an interesting point that I hadn't really considered is that large language models are trained on text, written text, and, and written text is often official documents. So Gabe, what, what does that mean then for countries where we don't have a huge amount of written language in that particular language? Yeah, this is a really great question and is one that we talk a lot about in this paper. Right now, in general, when you look into the world of natural language processing and talk about how do you build a language model in a given language, we often talk about high resource languages and we talk about low resource languages. High resource languages have a lot of data available. Low resource languages or extremely low resource languages have less data available. Um, but it's not just a volume of data available. It is also a quality of data and a diversity of data, right? So in many of these low resource languages, uh, the quality of data ends up being very low. 
A lot of times the data used to train these models are scraped from the internet. They will often pick up machine translated gibberish. They will often pick up uh, text from the wrong language, uh, offensive text, pornography, right? These are the kind of things that these models end up getting trained off of in low resource languages. And the cleaner, more high quality data sets end up being pretty limited in uh, their range of topics. Sometimes a language will have a Wikipedia corpus, but a lot of the times there will only be biblical or religious, usually Christian religious texts available in languages or uh, maybe parliamentary proceedings, right? And we can see this very much in the kind of text that these models end up generating. And you can see this a lot. You know, there's actually some languages um, a while back where if you Google translated something in Irish, something in Amharic, right? If you translate it back and forth enough times, it will begin to generate this very cryptic biblical text. And it's one of these things that kind of revealed just how much of the underlying training data for these low resource languages, if the fact that the regression to the mean is biblical, and not to mention that if these models so deeply encoded with biblical text are being used in decision-making systems, right? We can see a lot of red flags here. And I guess that's the, the challenge, right? Is this is built on kind of the mistakes of our, our past. And I know that you mentioned in the paper an example closer to folks in the global north of Catalan and how, how that works. What is the issue underlying the, the Catalan representation in these large language models? Yeah, so Catalan has a interesting issue. No parlaré en anglès ni en cap altra llengua where a lot of the text used in it is scraped from the web, right? It is scraped from .cat websites. And there's a law that says all .cat websites have to be in Catalan. However, a lot of folks end up using machine translation to make their text in another language available in Catalan, right? So now all of these language models are training off of just machine learned texts from Catalan, not really reflecting how native Catalan speakers use the language. It ends up being this sort of weird snake eating its own tail situation. And yeah, we, we know that the internet loves cats. There's probably folks who will have registered a .cat domain name who have no knowledge whatsoever of Catalan. And, and then that is what's being sucked up into this huge large language model that is churning through it at, at pace. Exactly. And they're also sort of taking into account very high level questions of like, do we actually want our language represented in this AI revolution? There are many people within certain communities who may say like, we actually don't want the harms to be applied on, onto our community or don't want to expose our language to sort of this engine of capitalism, right? So that may also be, be a question. And, and, you know, a parallel, a parallel thought that we're having also is trying to really reckon with like, what is the state of linguistic performance within these models currently, right? And I think for that, we have a number of transparency-related recommendations as well to try to understand when these models have actually trained in different languages, in which languages have they been trained, how have they been trained, and when are they being used, so that the everyday user actually is able to encounter these systems with a sort of informed perspective. Gabe, do you want to build on any of the recommendations? Um, I, I just want to highlight one of the challenges that you mentioned, which is often gets called the dual use problem, which is that 
a lot of the times when a language model is built to detect a certain type of content, it can also end up generating that type of content. The dual use problem is a lot of these models that can be used for good essentially can also be used for bad. And so when you develop a language model that works in a language, works in a maybe previously less digitized, low resource language, you then start to expose these language communities to, first off, all the harms of datafication, right? The various privacy things that come with scraping a lot of data in a language, but also some of the dangers that can happen with generative AI, the spread of mis and disinformation, the potential economic disruptions to labor, right? It introduces these language communities to all of these disruptions. I think there's a really difficult open question about what does it look like to do this in an ethical way? What does it look like to get input from language communities into how these models get built and how they get deployed? This is something that's so early days that we don't really have answers to these questions, but it very much feels like this is where priorities need to be. You mentioned that you know, the language communities need to be involved, the NLP community, the natural language processing community, which is a subsection of AI research needs to be involved. And then there are everyday users as well, and we can maybe get on in a second to what we can do to try and ensure that we are, are encoding these things with the right messages and in the right languages. But the the kind of often literally billion dollar question here, I guess, is the big tech companies. You know, it won't escape a lot of our listeners' attention to know that some of the biggest large language models, some of the biggest chatbots that we're using right now are generated, developed, sometimes sold by big tech companies. OpenAI with Microsoft's investment, Google with its version called Bard. What's the input been like from them? Do they recognize this issue? I think there is a lot of recognition of this issue and then stating that it is hard. I think especially in languages other than English, we've not seen the kind of quick rollout of safety mechanisms that we have in English, right? There's this kind of the same pattern that happens in the development of a lot of technology. It's also happening in uh, language models as well, which is optimize it for English and then get around to dealing with the problems in other languages. But as we've seen in the example of social media, right, where there were these countless global crises that were caused by a lack of content moderation, a lack of building systems that kept non-English language communities safe, these can have real harms if you don't address them quickly. It's not enough to deal with them later. It's something that we want to see more investment in right now. And we can call a spade a spade there. I'll come back to you in a second earlier. But when we talk about some of the harms that social media wrought, a lack of content moderators in specific languages in less developed parts of the world or less economically developed parts of the world, I should say, essentially cause conflicts. And so is this a hard question or is this an expensive question? You know, I think the the cases that you were just 
mentioning or alluding to in the social media content moderation example is a really like a microcosm of what we are seeing with these like language models, which is it wasn't just that there was a lack of investment in these systems and processes and in recruiting human reviewers. It was also a perpetuation of a specific perspective, an English perspective, an American English perspective applied onto different examples, right? If you were to look through several of the, you know, meta oversight board cases, um, just to specifically talk about one company, you would see a reckoning internally um, and some of the decisions the oversight board has resulted in, in like the, you know, National Congress attack in Brazil or in, um, you know, in the case of like taking down images of the LGBTQ community in the Middle East and things like that, you would see an internal reckoning of like, wait, we do have a policy. This post does actually violate this policy we have. However, we perceive this post to be something totally different. And that, you know, that was another example of just like two different contexts, loss in translation, being disconnected from one another and having an apparatus to actually do something about it. But for whatever reason, using a specific viewpoint and not really understanding the perspective on the ground. And I think that's sort of what's happening here, right? I think companies are acknowledging that they have users around the world. They are, you know, Microsoft, for example, in, over the last 10 years has expanded its operating system, its use of keyboards in multiple different languages, over 50 languages. There's definitely a reckoning and an acknowledgement that these systems need to work for their user base. But, you know, for not to be crude about it, they are following the money, right? There's no incentive to do it unless the user base is demanding it and withdrawing their dollars or sort of paying for it, right? And and I think we are seeing that in terms of, you know, in the last few years, we've seen Microsoft and Google invest millions of dollars, if not billions, to to digitize Indian languages, for example. And, you know, the cynic in me has to wonder if this is coinciding with the sort of arms race rhetoric around China, if it's coinciding with the increased population of India, the market power that now India has around the world. I, I don't think those, those questions are separate from whether companies care about languages or not. And this is part of the problem, right, is that arms race has fueled a speed of development that is even faster than the social media revolution. I mean, we are talking six or so months since ChatGPT was released and have all of these kinds of things happening now. So what are the consequences if we don't act to meet the moment? Um, it is hard to know the consequences. It is really, really hard to know the consequences. We don't have any kind of crystal ball. We can't tell how these models are going to get used. Is this a hype bubble that is going to pop? Is this the beginning of the end and the beginning of AGI? Is this just a slightly different economic paradigm than the one that exists? I think we don't really have answers to these questions, but because we are on the internet because we're in a mostly capitalist economic system, then all we do know is that there are going to be large ramifications for everything.
I, I guess I wanted to a little bit rewind to a framing that you put earlier, Chris, of is this hard or is this expensive? And I think the answer is that it is hard and expensive, right? So one potential issue that these models could end up creating is the centralization of language or like language erasure, right? Will dialects or you know entire languages end up getting destroyed because there's so much centralization around language models and like the economics that they fuel? That may be the case, right? So how do you deal with that, right? If we look at the example of Spanish, there are many, many different dialects of Spanish and model like ChatGPT doesn't reflect those, those different versions, right? It might reflect Mexican Spanish or Spain Spanish much more so. Well, all right, how do you wanna deal with that? One way could be to be introducing location to tell where the user is coming from. But is that really the kind of data that we want these models to be able to collect, right? Is it better to make mistakes assuming some other kind of Spanish or like regress to some mean? Like designing these systems to preserve the unique traits of every different kind of Spanish is just a really, really tough problem. One that has kind of no precedence and no very clear answer. And I think there is still there is still work to be done on these hard problems. But the question is, are companies willing to invest in the work to address these hard problems? And that's where it becomes an expensive problem that I don't know that companies are willing to take on all of them, or at least as many of them as we'd like. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest points um, about just like this convergence effect or, and centralization of language that a lot of computational linguists are afraid that this move towards not only AI, but specific technical architecture may sort of, you know, people are already really used to using dominant languages on the internet because of the lack of representation of languages online. This might just like power that as every sector we encounter like employment, banking, healthcare, move online will sort of be leaning on our dominant language usage more heavily at the expense of the other languages we speak at home and things like that. But there's also, I don't necessarily think some of the harms that this wave of AI has raised are particularly new, but they are perhaps more pernicious because they seem to be more opaque. In this sort of current wave of like language model discussion, there are currently a few language models that are being sold at this like enterprise level for a number of downstream applications. And so if we take, for example, search, you know, the use of chatbots um, integration in like our current search engine apparatus, I'm concerned that, you know, the same fault lines that we had with search of like few high quality results in certain languages or few high quality or relevant results in um, certain cultural search terms and things like that are only going to get more and more apparent, but less and less transparent. And, and you know, because we are relying on just a few larger and larger language models for a number of downstream tasks, the, the sort of accountability layer is like harder because of just like the number of ways we encounter them at the application layer. So that sort of is one of the things that make me nervous and and something that I think a lot of NLP communities are pushing back against, you know, saying like actually in languages in like a subset of African languages or a subset of like polyglossic languages like Spanish or Arabic, you know, perhaps smaller models 
are actually the answer, or perhaps models trained on only African languages where the high resource languages is still an African language that is actually more successful. So I think, you know, one of the things we need to do is sort of push back against this notion that the only approach is the sort of like big tech approach or proprietary model approach. Mm. And what else should we be doing as a, as a parting thought for our listeners who have heard all of these issues and the kind of stakes that are in play here? What else should we be doing about this problem? Um, I think it may be time, as in so many of these situations, to be willing to turn a little bit away from scale. There are just a lot of AI researchers who are working in a lot of different languages who have been doing a bunch of research to figure out what the models that work best for their languages, right? Is it a model trained just on data from that language? Is it a multilingual model with a bunch of related languages? Is it a multilingual model with, you know, a hundred odd different languages? And then you just show it a little bit more data from a language in particular. Maybe I'm going a little technical here, but there's a lot of different ways to build a language model in a different language. And when we see these big tech companies deploying these models, we very much see them trying to use one model in as many different situations as possible. But that just might not be the best approach for every individual language. And I think it's time for big tech companies to really start considering not just what is best for making systems at scale, but what is best for their individual language users and their individual language communities. I think I think that's one of our biggest takeaway messages. I think what we're seeing is that, you know, there's no universal language rules key to humanity. And I think building systems that sort of are trying to advance this premise that there's like a one model to save the world and communicate with everyone is nice in theory, but incorrect in practice. So challenge this notion of scale and also just go to where the language speakers are. You know, the problems we're trying to solve are very well understood by the language speakers and the NLP researchers within these language communities. And I think there's a great deal of innovation there rather than hypothetically creating a system. Alia Bhatia, Gabriel Nicholas, thanks so much for taking the time. Great. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to the first episode of Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which we'll be releasing every fortnight and looking at the wide variety of ways that the seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. If you would like to leave us a star rating or a review wherever you're listening, that would be hugely appreciated. It really makes a difference to our show. Thank you, and see you next time.